Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 8, When the Lights Come On. This week, we're in discussion with Canadian author and theologian Brad Jerzak. We're discussing the nature of salvation, Jesus' warnings, and some old dudes with great names. Brad is mainly, uh, for me, just a dear friend. Uh, we've, been, we've been friends for uh, lots of years now. And uh, in fact, uh, Brad does an awful lot of things. He's a he's a, a seminary professor. He's a publisher. He's an editor. He is a writer. He's written lots of books. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, he helped me with my first book. When everything changes, he is also somebody that I really he's a go to guy for me. Everybody needs a go to guy or two and he's my go-to guy when I'm saying what about this what about that what do you think and uh, so besides all of what he does and he's he's amazing and all the things that, that go on in his life in a in a day uh, he is just a, a very very dear and very helpful friend to me so Brad that's the last nice thing I'm going to say this afternoon <laughs> I'm grateful that you're uh, invited me on I'm excited to have a chat with you it's good to have you um, so for those who are new listeners to our show, basically uh, the way this works is uh, for about three weeks in a row we are running uh, some teaching on uh, John. We're in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John right now. Uh, and then after about three episodes, we take a break and we just we take some time for some questions because there are lots of questions. I mean, you, you're only touching on a as much as you can in 30, 40 minutes on a chapter. Uh, and of course, there's so much more there. So uh, we like to take some time out and ask some further and more in-depth questions. Uh, and Brad is our first ever special guest, so we're really excited to have an extra voice here, uh, some new perspective. Um, for those who have been listening to the podcast, you know episodes 5 and 6 were uh, focusing on John's chapter 3 and John chapter 4. Uh, so I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, when you were teaching on John chapter 3, a lot of that teaching was about being born again. You, you know, Jesus makes this crazy statement that you need to be born again. Uh, you said that that's perhaps better described or better translated as born from above. Um, have you heard that term, Brad, born from above? I have, yeah. And uh, it, it's, a, it's one of those long, long discussions that have happened through history about uh, first of all what does what does Jesus mean by that in context that night um, how much of that and would Nicodemus have understood and you've got a range of responses to that from clueless to he's totally tracking um, and then how does how is John intending us to understand it 60 years later as he's writing it to a particular Christian community and how they might reflect on it when he says things like born uh, uh, from above and and uh, in the spirit and in water and things like that <laughs> and so there's there's sort of uh, multiple answers to it and the more I study it the, the more agnostic I am about it <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Steve, were you? What did you mean by "born from above"? Well, for one thing, I wanted to just say that uh, just the term "born from above," "born again," 
they seem to be almost interchangeable. It just depends which translation, which commentary. So I don't, I don't want to get very hung up on that. But the, the real issue there is, uh, yeah, born from above, born of the Spirit of God, um, born again, renewing uh, a whole new beginning. Uh, for me, bread, and especially since, as you know, uh, multiple times a year I find myself standing in front of crowds of people in other countries uh, sharing the gospel. You and I have talked about that a number of times. And and what what is the context for being born again? You know, and and in fact, where I go, Brad, uh, especially in Africa, that is uh, that's a noun. Oh, he's a born again, uh, or he's a whatever else. And uh, and and so it's it has become a very black and white issue. It seems in in some of the church, either you're a born again or you're not a born again. And um, their context, of course, is you want to be a born again. <laughs> I think it's a uh, it's a huge huge area of discussion. But I, I'd like to dig into it a little bit today. I'd love to hear some of what you've got to say. I did say in the the teaching, and I say it all over the place. I was up in Canada just four weeks ago, and I and I said that. Surely salvation is determined by more than whether we do or do not pray a 30-second prayer. Um, And I'm pretty sure you and I would agree on that. Uh, Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. So, um, let's say, for example, in the context of of that Nicodemus story, uh, Christ definitely seems to be saying something needs to happen here that that happens from above. And so I... Today I've been immersed in the story of Cornelius, uh, with also some reference to the story of Saul of Tarsus' conversion. And so, um, in both cases, you have you have Christ dramatically doing something, initiating something that that uh, certainly for Paul uh, has to do with hearing a message or encountering a person that causes him. Uh, well, it's a blinding message that causes ultimately scales to fall from his eyes. So it's a blinding light that gives him vision, and so and the lights come on inside. And perhaps you can see him reflecting on this in Second Corinthians four when he says, "The God of this age is blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they they can't believe." But then, the God who said, "Let there be light," has said, "Let there be light in their hearts." And you can and he believes that the way that this happens is is through the good news. And so I'm imagining people that you speak to in Africa and in India, uh, people you know from other faiths or no faith or you know some kind of distorted Christian faith. But as you're sharing the good news of of, of Christ, um, a light comes on inside, and we would have to say that something's being birthed there that perhaps has been in the womb all their lives, but it's come to full term now. And so, mm-hmm. and so then it, it's, it's birthed through the power of this good news message about Christ. And I love how it happens with Cornelius, because it's as Peter is preaching, and in fact, um, Cornelius has, had said that the message was, you, you know, you're already accepted by God. You've already made, made clean. You're already, but I want, I want you to go hear this message that is going it's going to turn something on in a sense. So as he's hearing the message, 
before he can even make a choice. I don't because I don't think it's happening at the will level. Um, uh, the Holy Spirit falls on them, and the lights come on, and, and it's sort of like, oh, I get it. And yeah. um, so yes. that's one element. I, yeah. um, before I add a past, present, and future dimension to it, do you want to respond to what I just said at all? Uh, well, I, I'm in huge agreement with you that that what we're doing um, is is presenting them an already accomplished reality. So that yeah. when when they go, oh, I get it. It's like it's always been there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, you and I have talked. Uh, Baxter Kruger talks about it's not conditional good news. It's good news, and um, and people just lean into that, or they don't. But uh, but it's it's based on this aha moment. This getting it. Okay, so or they don't. Let's talk about that for a second because. There are times when the gospel is presented and the light doesn't come on, uh, to use your terminology, Brad. They, they don't accept the good news. They don't have that aha moment. Uh, a, why not? Uh, and B, what does that mean for them uh, in terms of salvation? I mean, we're going to talk a little bit later about what salvation means, but, I mean... If they if they if the light doesn't go on, then what? Well, what we say about salvation dramatically impacts how we answer that question, because if we think salvation is until they say yes, they're out, then we will say, oh no, the light didn't come on, so they're still out. Um, I don't see it that way. I I believe that one aspect of salvation past is that what Christ did, he did for all, and that in Romans 5, the already accomplished facts that Paul uh, delineates include these, that while you were weak, he died for you. While you were sinners, he forgave you. And while you were enemies, he reconciled you. Done Mm. deal at the incarnation. So in that sense... Their, the truth of their being is that now what happened to all humanity in Adam has been undone in all humanity in Christ. So there's this past dimension that includes all in the work of Christ. So that's salvation passed for all through Christ. But if the light doesn't come on, then the truth of their being, their truth of their new, this new reality of what Christ has done um, – the truth of their being doesn't become the way of their being at this point. In other words, they don't begin to enjoy what is already theirs. And so even though there's no separation anymore between them and God, they can have an experience of alienation where they just don't see. Um, why, why is it that some get that the first time? And why is it that some need to hear it, you know, 14 times and... I don't know. That's quite a mystery. Um, I also know that there's a parallel, though, and that is that when when we have been embedded, let's say, in the world of addictions, there are certain addicts where, you know, on on average, they need to go, they need to bottom out and and go through detox and then rehab like 14 times before it sticks. Why is that? And it, it's something to do with surrender. So, so we're not saying that this is that this. 
that this salvation doesn't come with a summons. It does to respond and to participate in what's been done for you. But it also doesn't come with coercion. And it's like um, he capacitates us, God capacitates us through Christ for a willing response. And so self-will is is able to resist that somehow. So this is quite a mystery that's been you know debated for two thousand years now. But I think what we're saying is that the birth is definitely from above, and something that is birthed from above, the means of that is through the preaching of the gospel and the turning on of the lights inside, and that willing human participation uh, is, is engaged in such a way that it's not like we can go around turning the light switch on at will for other people. Um, and I, I don't know. What do you think of that mystery? What do you think of that mystery? I think <clears throat> I I don't understand why some respond and others don't, other than uh, to say it's certainly a work of the Holy Spirit. I think I mean Paul makes it clear in in Romans uh, that all men have seen creation; they've seen God at work. Uh, and so there's something in in them already that recognizes th- there is a God. Basically, I think he's kind of saying it ain't no such thing as an atheist because you've seen his work and you can't deny it. Um, and I think he's even saying those who haven't necessarily been uh, had an explicit presentation of the gospel or of the good news, they still there's something inherently in them. Uh, they they are made in his image, and so they can't ignore that fact. Uh, and yet, there, there. I don't. To me, the word makes it clear that at some point there is a choice. You use the word coercion, which I'm interested to hear more about what you mean by that. Isn't it? It's not a coercive thing. Um, and I'm I'm not sure what you mean by that. I don't know if you can expand on that a little bit. Um. What I mean is that a response to the gospel um, that that God has given us the dignity of a willing response. Mm. Coercion um, would be like where you don't get to make a choice. Mm-hmm. However, having said that, base, when I look at Paul's conversion and his reflections in Second Corinthians four, I'm not entirely sure that that will is the. Uh, is is what's the word I'm looking for? It's not the time signature or something that mm-hmm. that like we're not we're not functioning in the sense of a will so much as illumination and response to a, to the light. So it's more about seeing than choosing. And so this solves a couple of the problems. One problem is that when we make it all about human choice, then really who's saving us? We are. When we make it all about God's choice, you enter a kind of determinism or fatalism or whatever. It's like he just chooses and you don't have a choice. And this is election, unconditional election, irresistible grace and so on. It's like, again, but then it's about God's absolute will or my absolute will. But if this is more about blindness and seeing then God is able to do everything necessary for me to be saved. And then the gospel is about seeing that he has done that and saying yes to it. So are we saved or not? Yes. <laughs> do we enjoy, the, do we participate in that salvation? Yeah. We can. <laughs> um, 
And so the, pa- the, the past sense of salvation is all about the incarnation. The present sense that you get in, in um, the New Testament seems to be an embrace of the gift that has been given through, and it's usually through baptism or something like that. And then, and then, um, and then there's even a future sense though, and that none of us are saved yet because we haven't come to the final resurrection of the dead. Yeah. And th- so there's this: anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When? When you call on the name of the Lord? Well, kind of, but also ultimately. And so, so sorry. Can I can I ask you yep. just for clarity? Because that may, that makes it sound like you're saying everybody will be ultimately saved, whether they respond to the message or not, whether that light turns on in the in the here and now or not. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that ultimately everyone will willing res- re- willingly respond. I mm. hope, <laughs> but willingly. So this is the good news, though. And, and I'm, so now I'm going to hide behind the garments of some of the church fathers. So Maximus the Confessor says it this way. He says, look at when you're, when you're presented with the gospel and you resist it, that is clearly a dysfunction of your will. People, part of the fall is that we have a dysfunctional will. Hmm. And that the gospel has a way of, of bringing it back online, but not all. Um, will experience that in this life. So then he thinks to the future, and, and just as a caveat, whenever we talk beyond the grave, we are entering, we are entering the realm of arrogance to even talk about it. And so I'm about to commit the sin of arrogance, but I'm only <laughs> going to do it by citing Maximus. Uh, okay. What Maximus says is, if you come to the final judgment, would God be perfectly just and perfectly loving if he condemned you for saying no to him with a dysfunctional will. That's like blaming a blind person for not being seeing, and that's not right. So then Maximus says, um, in the way that Paul had his eyes opened to Christ on the road to Damascus, at the final judgment, every eye will see him. And, that, and when every eye will see him, the, uh, the things that cause dysfunction to our will, the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, those barriers to seeing, those blinders will be removed from our eyes. And so Maximus is very hopeful that when the world, the flesh, and the devil are removed as blinders from our eyes and that every eye sees Christ as he really is and their wills are healed to respond as they were designed to, then of course we'll say yes to him, but it has to be willing. He, 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 these guys in the early church, they're absolutely jealous to say that if, if Christ could at any point remove human will, he would have. <laughs> he should have. But uh, he is, he's, he's interested in, in creating the conditions for real love, which requires will, which allows for resistance. In theory, or in principle, you could say, that some might resist him through all eternity. But it seems infinitely unlikely once the will has been healed. And and so while it's while I can't say anything, I'm not even allowed to make a doctrine of this. The early church forbids that. Hmm. What we do say is this people need him today. Yeah. <laughs> and we have a gospel that can open eyes today, and when we preach it, many eyes are open today, and sometimes first time, sometimes 14th time, maybe sometimes at the final judgment. 
but I'm not waiting around to find out because mm-hmm. there's such a desperation in people now who are living in, in in bondage to the world of flesh and the devil. And also, we've met the best person in the universe, and, and like we want to share about him. So some people, when they hear me being hopeful, they're like, well, then why evangelize? It's like, don't you know what pain people are in? Mm-hmm. And don't you know how Jesus, how wonderful yeah. Jesus yeah, is? that's good. That's really good. Yeah. Um, so are you cringing there, Steve? Or you, no. <laughs> you know, I'm not cringing with you on this at all. It is interesting because um, as, as my own gospel has evolved, and it's evolved a lot, I'd say, in the last seven or eight years, um, and we've talked, you and I, about the whole thing of the, the gospel uh, is about us being set free. The cross was victorious against, mm-hmm. you know, sin and sickness and the devil, and that uh, it's done. When he said it's finished, he probably meant it's finished. So sometimes people say to me, well, then why do you preach the gospel, or why do you give an invitation? Because, you, you know, I still do. Yeah. Um, because I may use language that they're comfortable or understand, but what I'm really saying is I'm inviting you to come and enter into a journey with Christ. And only he knows how far along each one is. You know, I was doing a, a house church meeting uh, in, a, in a gypsy house about three or four weeks ago, and I have no idea. Nobody but Jesus could know where each of these people were on the journey. It was so unclear. But my gospel is the same for all of them, because wherever they are on the journey, I'm trying to encourage them, as C.S. Lewis said, further up, further in. So that's why I still very much give an invitation, you know, basically turning their back on the thief, as you've heard me say before, turning to Christ. But I don't see it as this is your moment and that's it. Now you're in. What I see it is an invitation that I give rather fervently because it's my only chance I'm going to be in front of this group of people in whatever third world country. I'm, it's what you said. I, I'm inviting them to the greatest person in the universe. I'm inviting them into a new beginning. And I'm inviting them into a journey. I am not saying, oh, whew, you prayed that prayer tonight, so everything's okay. That's not where I am. Um, and and the, the hopefulness, I, I, I'm really glad that you said we can't make a doctrine of it because we can't. And as I'm in a journey right now of reading through church fathers, it's really interesting watching how their understanding of that is developed over those first few centuries. But we don't make a doctrine. What we do know is that he's come to give us eternal life, and this is eternal life, that you might know him and his only son, Jesus Christ. That that this is eternal life. It is a quality of life that that pulls, we're back to born from above, that pulls the reality of heaven into my life in all dimensions and pulls me into close, close fellowship with the triune God that affects my life right now. I don't really think very much about what's going to happen when I die and I'm before the Lord. I mean, we all think about it a little, but that's not the point for me of the gospel. It is, it is this heaven now. Today's episode is brought to you by Bulgaria. 
Join Impact Nation September 16th to the 28th for a trip that will change your life. Watch as people are healed right before your eyes as you pray for the sick in Jesus' name. Deliver food and medicine to a people that face daily rejection and a life of poverty. We will be ministering to the Roma people in villages where the unemployment rate is as high as 70%. You could bring a message of hope to a people who believe they've been forgotten. Lives will change forever at the hearing of that message. Your life will change forever too, I promise. Join us. You'll never be the same. Visit impactnations.com slash J-O-C to learn more about our trip to Bulgaria. And now, back to the podcast. So, but let me ask you this, because I hear what you're saying about you don't spend time thinking about what's going to happen after this life. You spend time about, uh, you spend time thinking about uh, the abundant life that's available to us here and how can we invite more people into that abundant life. Yes. But Jesus did spend time talking about um, the eternal implications of our choices in this life. I mean, I, I'm thinking of Matthew 25, uh, and he's specifically, I think, speaking to the sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats, and he, I mean, he says, uh, the verse 41, maybe uh, rather explicitly, like, "Hey, if if you're not, if, you know, if if you're not caring for the poor, effectively." Uh, you are choosing to be basically depart from me, step outside, and that's where I mean he uses the word eternal punishment. I believe at least in in the ESV he does, and maybe that's a poor translation. I don't know, but um, it's a poor I mean, translation. Yeah. Is it? Uh, but 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 he does talk about uh, yeah. the the eternal implications of our of our life here. Brad, I remember you and I were doing a conference together. I think it was here in Albuquerque, and you took a few minutes to talk about that parable. Could you compress a little bit in response to what Tim said? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so first of all, there's a whole lot going on there. It is a parable, and it's in a series of parables. So the mm-hmm. first thing I want to say about that series of parables is they do carry dire warnings, and that it does it does not it it, it doesn't do us a service to pretend they don't. That we are meant to undergo the dire warnings of these parables and these dire warnings are not expressed primarily towards sinners in the stereotypical fashion this is towards uh, the religious in crowd so it's a very interesting thing that jesus does and all of the church fathers do when they preach dire warnings about outcomes it's to the religious in crowd they wouldn't preach this way ever in northern india to pagans or something it, it's a, this is about it's a kind of rhetoric used on Christians or on you know the, the temple establishment or whatever. So that's one thing, and and you don't you don't want to take the teeth out of it. That said, uh, Pope Benedict XVI said that the the um, punchline of every one of Jesus' parables is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So. Something, something is you're left. You're left hanging with these parables. It's like, oh no! And then Christ, Christ dies, and he conquers death, and he overcomes Hades, and he returns with good news of life for all. And so somehow we must not we we must not read those parables anymore without reference to his victorious death and resurrection. So that's a second factor. The third factor is in Matthew 25, 
what is the function of these parables? The function of these parables is actually not to get, tell you about the nature of the, nas- the last judgment or the afterlife. The function of the parables is to define the ethics of the kingdom for the here and now among us. So it's not like he's saying, you should do all these good things or else one day you'll go to hell. He's saying quite the opposite. He's saying, there is a judgment coming, therefore, do all these good things. Let's In, in light of death, in light of each judgment, in light of eternity, how shall we then live now? So, in fact, he's actually not doing eschatology at all. He's saying that when you stand in front of a, a, a naked kid or a hungry refugee or a, you know, whatever, you're experiencing the final judgment. This is the judgment. <laughs> so, he... I think I think I'm saying he's he's bring this is about ethical teaching not eschatology. Hmm. And then specific to the Matthew 25 um, parable the co- most common translation is this warning of uh, of uh, eternal punishment but the two Greek words that are used there um, there's some controversy about this and always has been so I'm only going to cite Clement of Alexandria from 200 AD. So this is 100 years after the Gospel of John was complete, or roughly. So um, he he talks about the, the words, and he was a Greek. He knows what he's talking about. This is like his first language. And he picks up this passage and he goes, look at you guys, first of all, the word for judgment here, Colossus, is, is never used for retribution in the New Testament, it's always about correction. The correction of a loving father. It's not just retributive punishment, it's restorative um, uh, judgment um, of a father who wants to bring bring you back into the fold. And then he and then he goes to the word Ionion, which the word used there for eternal, and he just shows you all these places in the Bible where it's not talking about everlasting, ongoing, without end, that it's about the age to come. So if we were to be super um, careful with the translation, it's still a dire warning. And it would be but it would be something like this. If if you come before Christ one day and he's like, well yeah, actually that wasn't uh I didn't do any of those things. All of them, by the way, sins of omission. Not one sin of commission there. Mm-hmm. All sins of omission. And then he, and then he says, um, okay, you're the goats. The goats now are going to have, uh, sorry, you're going to have to go into the judgment of the age to come. Hopefully, restorative judgment of the age to come, after which you have the end of the ages, where God is all in all, and every enemy's been vanquished, and Christ gives his kingdom over to the Father. So in a sense, it's a very dire warning, but it's penultimate, which means the second last thing. Um, that, that the judgment of the age to come is penultimate to the ultimate, uh, the end of the ages where, where, where Christ wins. And then uh, just one last thing about that parable. Within about, I'm guessing like also by before 200 or into the 200s, people began realizing, oh wait, I'm a sheep and a goat. I walked by a naked guy yesterday, but I visited a hospital today. Um, But then again, I've really ignored prisoners all my life. But then again, I've 
fed a lot of hungry, well, what am I, a sheep or a goat? And so what they begin to do is they begin to say this parable is not ultimately about two groups of people going to two places. This parable is a judgment that cuts right down your heart. And, hmm. and there's mm-hmm. sheep in your heart and there's goats in your heart. And there is, there is fatherly correction uh, and that can be a severe mercy wherever you are committing these sins of omission. And there's a, there's a blessing and a welcome and an embrace for that part of you that's a sheep. And, this is, and so the judgment is internalized then for all people. And um, I'm, I'm not saying that's what Jesus was saying. I'm saying that's how the early church learned to apply the parable to each one of us. Hmm. So that's a lot of five things I think I shared, but important stuff. That's good. Yeah, Great. I hadn't heard some of that stuff. That's very helpful. Um, so the only person on planet Earth who's never had a goat in his heart is Jesus. Uh, and he ultimately was demonstrating perfection in terms of how he related to the poor. Um, and so in episode six, uh, you were teaching John four uh, about uh, the woman at the well. And the Samaritan. And you made the point uh, that um, Jesus gets down to her level. And he's, uh, he's his, I mean, his first missions trip, you pointed out, was to a minority group. The Samaritans were not well thought of. They were, um, you know, on the outside of society, uh, not accepted. And he goes to the minority group and then further still comes down to her level. He, can you tell us a little bit more about, about that? Okay, um, it's as I shared in as I've been sharing through this series. John doesn't waste a word or a sentence. Everything is it's either a setup or it's a confirmation of what he's initially said. And for it's like the first thing he took the disciples to was not the synagogue; it was to a party. That's intentional. The first missions trip is to the hated Samaritans. By the way, I was thinking about this this morning. Do you realize that when he had this interaction with her and she heard this incredible good news we were talking about 10 minutes ago, she went to the town, right, and brings the whole town. What does that make the Samaritan woman? The first evangelist (laughs) in the New Testament. And isn't that powerful what John is saying? Mm. Um, this completely it transcends culture and ethnicity. But it's also very intentional that Jesus went there. And that uh, John, John has created this as one of the most famous episodes in, uh, in, uh, you know, in his whole gospel. Um, I think that it's interesting that his interaction with her was he started by coming in weakness. Of course, John is stressing his, his, uh, he's fully man, fully God, so we see him in his humanity. He says, I'm thirsty, you know, before the passion. That's like his weakest moment. But he connects to a woman through his own weakness. And what would that mean for us, the church, if we connected to the minority, to the disenfranchised, not with we've got what you need, but rather coming and connecting with them at their level. Mm. Brad, you're 
you've already demonstrated that you were an early church expert. Was the early church better at this than the modern church? Or the postmodern church, perhaps? Uh, better at what? At meeting, at embracing uh, the rejected, at embracing those <laughs> who society has cast aside. Um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, some examples come to mind. There, there, there were um, there's generalized versions of that where where in the second century that there were the Christians the the church was really under the gun of accusations that that the, that the church was a bad thing, and they're like, hang on a second, look at our lives. Look what yeah. we're doing. We're caring for the poor. Yeah. We're we're taking care of the needy. And this is happening right now in parts of China, where the persecutions have often been really intense. But the, but like nobody else will care for the old, and so that can be a def- you know a way of defending against persecution is is by let your light shine before men so they can see your good deeds and not only if not glorify your father in heaven at least not kill you um, <laughs> one of my one of the my favorite uh, old <laughs> ancient church people is Saint Basil the Great we call him Saint Basil the Great for two reasons one is on the theological end he lived in the second you know second half or died in the probably the 380s and that second half of the fourth century um, he's great because he's the, he was the great defender of the person of the Holy Spirit as a, a fully God and member of the tri, you know triune God. So they're still arguing about whether the Holy Spirit was was fully God in the late three hundreds, and mm. and he wins the day. However, uh, even better than that, they developed a city called the Basiliad, named after him. The Basiliad was. He's, he, it was in his heart for the poor he said things like him and his buddies would say things like um, if you can't find Christ in the poor you won't find him in the chalice and this is the guy writing the liturgy for the Eucharist <laughs> he's like if you can't find him in the poor you won't find him in the cup don't worry about that so they start the Basiliad and what it is it's, it's the growing city of um, hostels for strangers on the road Hospitals for the sick and hospices for the dying, and basically they were looking at at every strata. They're looking at Matthew twenty-five. Who are the strangers? Oh, the stranger is the immigrant and the refugee. Okay, we'll make hostels. Um, who who has diseases and disabilities right now that are not being cared for? Okay, we'll make hospitals. How about like who's dying and it's just they need someone in that in. in Okay, we'll make hospices, and so the the Basiliad was a great example of of putting this faith in action. Hmm. There are a lot of churches that are doing a lot of similar things. I mean, there are there is fantastic work around the globe, uh, missionaries abroad, and right here in Canada, the United States. But I mean, I'm just going to say it: a lot of the church, the uh, vocal part of the church in our media seem to behave quite the opposite towards the refugee, towards the immigrant. Uh, I mean, we are in a very intense time when it comes to debate about 
illegal immigration, especially, I mean, only 300 miles from where I sit, uh, they are detaining people for crossing the border illegally. What, what should or could the church's response be to the current situation? Um, you know, I've got a few thoughts. So, look, at I'm a grace guy <laughs> at some <laughs> level. But it does seem to me that the rhetoric of dire warnings may be becoming appropriate again. Hmm. The apocalyptic imagery in Christ's parables, while not ultimate, has teeth. And I'm like... I, I, I'm not one to rush around um, pointing the finger because I do not hold the high moral ground on this. But, but the resurgence of these parables might be important, especially ones such as like the rich man and Lazarus is absolutely not about did you get Jesus in your heart. It is about, it is about the, the greedy privileged coming down and they will this whole thing is coming down and the and the poor man left at the gates starving uh, is is going to be lifted up and so there's this great reversal in Luke's language also in the Magnificat Mary's yes, song yes. I mean that is like hardcore stuff and it's about economics especially in Luke over and over and over so that so so one element of resistance is pre- is preaching the gospel the sort of the preaching the parables and letting them say what they say, and and bringing Matthew twenty five back again and again and again, and it's, but it, um, so that's one element. The other is that there needs to be repentance for what Archbishop Lazar calls partisan amoralism, and so I'll just describe that briefly. Um, Fifteen years ago, I asked him what would be the one thing you say to Christians in Canada evangelicals especially and he said he didn't hesitate he said your moralism is killing you and that is we had replaced um, the Christian gospel with just kind of uh, moral uh, back padding and I asked him recently would you have the same answer he says no my answer would be that what's killing you now is partisan amoralism and what that means is it's when you take a, a political party or ideology so I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, or I'm a liberal, I'm a progressive, I'm a conservative. And those are ideologies. Anything on the spectrum, the right-left spectrum, the whole spectrum is the world. And anybody who identifies with their party, ideology, or place on the spectrum ahead of the morality preached in the Gospels by Jesus is now has an allegiance problem and that that is a, it, it's an idolatry so if i if jesus says you if you don't welcome refugees you're not welcoming me but my party line is yeah hmm. uh, contrary to that then this is a this is a direct head on uh, uh, collision between and and it's not just a collision even worse than choosing your party over Jesus is remaking Jesus in the image of your party so now Jesus is this is this is the very one who says no we, we shouldn't be letting them in it's like well that's not the Jesus of the gospel so now you've created an idol and called it Jesus this, this just requires real repentance so those are two negative things um, 
in a sense. Uh, on, a, on a positive note, I think we um, we we need some we need good models and heroes. And sometimes those models and heroes, if you think of the civil rights movement under Martin Luther King Jr., he was hated. Like he wasn't a hero, <laughs> but he becomes this archetype, a heroic archetype, of, um, partly through co-suffering love and radical yeah. um, and martyrdom in the end, really. But um, so, okay, Steve, you're not, you know, you're not. We don't have a day for you yet, and there's no national celebration or statues. But you're modeling something that is archetypal, and and maybe at some point that kicks in for people who understand finally we can't live this way anymore we just can't live this way anymore and when we bottom out on on then maybe we'll we'll be ready to repent and then we're and then the question is like okay then what what should we do it's like okay i know i know well look at impact nations website and and that will be your beginning right so there's a model for an alternative to this partisan amoralism where there's actually a Christ-like followership into the, these kingdom things that's not just messiah complex or colonialism but actually working at the level of, of, of leaders. So I really commend you and what you guys are doing because I, what I need when, when people people say like, well, then you're, you're, you're all, you're talking all high and mighty, what's the alternative? Like, Impact Nations. What do you think? Or some of my other friends, you know, that are modeling this. So. It's a really interesting thing. I, <clears throat> I'll get personal here for the world, I guess. But um, Saturday morning, I was just sitting out in my backyard, listening to some music, reading my Bible, having my cup of coffee. And as I was just reading Matthew 27, because it was the day for Matthew 27 as I read through. And when I read about the crucifixion, I don't know how long it's been since it was that real to me. Mm. And I was crying, and I just kept thinking about those children and those refugees. And uh, and I just kept saying, Jesus, I am so sorry. I am so sorry, and I, I'm being very vulnerable now because there's no nobility in it. I just felt, by association, I felt, dear Lord, how have we fallen so far away from the gospel and are holding on to that um, that idolatrous Christ that we have created, an idolatrous gospel. And I, I was just, I was... Uh, I was, I'm feeling this moment saying it again. I was so sad. You know, I I don't know very much about what to do. I really don't know. But I do know that when I go down into an area in my city called Little Mexico, where I always have to take a Spanish-speaking person because, sadly, I, I don't speak any Spanish, the level of fear and anxiety right now that is there is just off the chart. And... Uh, we need wisdom from the Holy Spirit to know what to do to at least minister comfort mm-hmm. to the frightened. And, uh, yeah, this is a very unique time. I, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm 65 years old next week. I remember vividly the 60s and 
especially 68. And, but I don't remember a time like this where what I feel like is, is you know, government-sanctioned anti-biblical stuff is going on. Now, I just went right out on a limb and was pretty strong. <laughs> but I, I, I can't find the Gospels. I certainly can't find the Sermon on the Mount. I can't find the Beatitudes in where we're being led uh, sociopolitically. Uh, can you guys? No, not sociopolitically. Um, what I'm hearing, just in summation from the two of you, what I'm hearing is it starts with prayer. Brad, you talked about repentance, uh, and and then, Dad, you talked about uh, asking the Holy Spirit for for guidance. How do we mm-hmm. how do we respond? Uh, and so I think it starts with prayer. It certainly can't end there. I mean, it, we're asking the Holy Spirit, what do I do? Um, you know, coming back to Matthew 25, Jesus doesn't say, well, if you thought about going to visit the prisoner or if you thought about clothing the naked, that's that's right on the mark. Obviously, that's, that's the beginning. Uh, but it has to start there. It has to start with humbling ourselves, uh, not only as as individuals, but I believe as, as the body of Christ, as the church, uh, humbling ourselves, asking for repentance, and then asking the Holy Spirit, what's next? Where do we go from here? And being like, like Daniel 9, and not, oh God, do something with those guys, mm-hmm. but rather, oh God, yeah. I've sinned. We, 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 we just got to own this. We've got we've to own this. Yeah. How... They, the, 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 it might be harder for you because you're doing this stuff every day, but like most most of us can say, I am somehow complicit. Daniel says, we we have sinned. Yes, uh, I am a beneficiary of that sin, even if I'm not actively committing it. And 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 so. I think that means I need to guard my heart from contempt of the, of them. Yes. Because to the degree that I enter, I'm so angry about it, and I'm actually committing the sin of despair many days. <laughs> but if I move, when I move into contempt, then then I can't see the log in my own eye. Yep. I'm I'm paralyzed um, from from the very actions Christ is requiring of us in the in Matthew 25 and then and also I I enter into self-righteousness and hatred of whoever my other happens to be and um, and and that makes me a Pharisee <laughs> so whoops you know and so I I think um, it's 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 good these days to to look in the mirror, in the mirror on this. Stuff. Yes, and, and, yes, yes, um, yes. My Godfather, he he asked me to pray the prayer of Saint Ephraim every day, which which says something like this: "O Lord and Master of my life, give me not a spirit of idleness, uh, despondency, ambition, or vain talking, but instead a spirit of purity." Humility, patience, and love bestow on me your servant. Help me to see my own sins and not to judge my brothers. For blessed are you from unto ages of ages. Amen, right? So we pray that to, to, to sort of 
to make sure that it's that we're not just pointing at the finger elsewhere and yet yes. we're still also saying there is a resistance to injustice that is part of the game and to do that with a pure heart is really really tough but maybe maybe you do it by you you enter your own heart first and and then you come out and my hope there then is that instead of being the the condemning younger brother which just makes me the older brother i can see christ pleading with the pharisees when he tells the story of the prodigal son the punchline of which is actually pleading with the older brother mm-hmm. the younger brother was already in party's yeah. happening yeah we don't prodigal son's not about going to get the younger brother he's, he's already come home don't worry about it but like to plead with the older brother instead of imagine i imagining that i'm not the older brother and second condemning the older brother. well then i've just missed the point of the parable so uh so i'm sighing a lot i'm 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 weeping these days and i'm angry and i and i'm and i'm complicit <laughs> so well you have uh, described uh, much of the state that I'm in right now, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and so how do you one have of the hope in the midst of that, then, Steve. Like, where do we? Because um, the spirit of despondency is one of the things that's a real danger to to people who are effective activists. Yes, it's true. I, I the you know I I don't know, Brad. I I I don't know. All I know is like in my in my overseas world. When I start to feel overwhelmed with the needs, I have to just make myself put the blinkers on and get down to, but I can do this. I can help this person, or we can do something in this neighborhood, because otherwise it's very real. I can just get overwhelmed with with the scope of it. So where I'm wrestling is right now, Lord, when I'm in town... What can I do, uh, you know, to use Heidi Baker's phrase, how do I stop for the one? Uh, what can I do uh, to bring comfort? Because the people of God are to, are to comfort with the comfort that they themselves have received, right? And, and that so, produces inspiring stories, I think. Like, real, to me, that's, I suppose that's been the most helpful thing is to, is to, in, in the face of overwhelming evil, it's like, well, this person here, guess what happened to them? And their life will never be the, the same. Yeah. They're, 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 and to me, that kind of inspiration then is, is probably where we need to root our hope rather than thinking, imagining somehow we're going to go change the world. Well, no, but today I can text a couple of sex addicts that I'm sponsoring. And my friend Dean, he's going to go to the prison and tell some, some murderers that they're in. Yeah, <laughs> and, and um, yeah, and uh, there's going to be a whole lot of kids getting clean water today because of what you guys do, you know, and so on. So the, I guess, I guess to answer my own question, that's that's been a good handle for me on hope to go if to to look at these these individual places where it's like wow, like dramatic transformation hmm. of those that I'm given. And sharing those stories might inspire others. Yeah, yeah it's good. good. So let, I'll le- let that lead right into my plug, which is, folks, if you're not following us on Facebook, uh, do so because you're going to get encouragement multiple times a week, these stories of 
as you said, Brett, children getting clean water. Uh, just today I was working on uh, getting uh, small businesses started for uh, five young ladies who uh, a year and a half ago were living on the street, uh, pregnant, uh, victims of abuse, and with zero hope. Uh, and now they've, they've had their babies, they've received training in skills, uh, and uh, have received business training, and now we're going to get them small loans to get them to go and, and become self-sustained. Uh, hang out at impactnations.com, hang out at our Facebook page. Uh, when you need those stories of hope, that's, that's a good place to go. Um, so that's my plug. Uh, Brad, what are you up to these days? What, where can people find you? What can they uh, do to follow you? Uh, I have a website called bradjersnack.com, and we'll give you the link to that. Um, one thing I'm excited about is I, I, I'm working more towards, um, on the academic side, with ssu.ca. And what it is, it's St. Stephen's University. It's the smallest university in Canada. Um, but we have a Master of Ministries program that people who want good theological education can do it um, at a distance. But you do get the... You come in for like one week or two weeks for a couple of years, and you get a, a university master's degree, but you don't have to quit your job or your ministry or your or move or anything like that. You come in, do the intensive. It's a beautiful kind of retreat, and then you go home and do the papers and the readings and so on and so forth. I, I'm quite excited about what's being, what's being taught at that school, including um, one of the programs that we have just started is called uh, the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice. And um, I'll get you the links for that too, but let me just find them here. Um, and, and so uh, IRJP, no, IRPJ, sorry, IRPJ.org, the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice.org. Uh, what that's about is that that's specific to uh, peace building in the world and it's the 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 the, tr- the transformative journey the the heart transformation that needs to happen in the peacemaker in order for them to do justice in the world in a way that really hel- uh, helps and that's a that's a one-year certificate that i'm also a, i'm i'm lecturing i'm doing on uh right now i'm this coming fall we'll be doing peace and violence in the new testament and so <laughs> <laughs> some of these themes come in there and then I'll do a follow-up course on peace and violence in the Old Testament and, and how these relate today to the, the kinds of things people want to be doing in the world. So thought I would plug those things today. And I'm writing a follow-up book to A More Christ-Like God. For those who haven't read it, A More Christ-Like God was the book I did on that God is like Jesus, who is cruciform, which means cross-shaped. He's revealed God as self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And um, I'm just working on a follow-up book called A More Christ-Like Way. And it's like, what would it be for us as people then to be expressions of self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love in mm. this world? And I think you guys are that. But that'll be out next spring or so. Keep, keep posted. So That's great. Awesome. I'm sure Steve will like the book. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure like Steve that. will. I, I like your yeah, stuff. Him will too, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Does it have any gotta... pictures, Brett? <laughs> <laughs> There's a really nice one at the front. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being with us today, Brad. Yeah. You have given us lots to think about, lots to chew on. Uh, and just, I love diving into some of the early church fathers and early church history as well. So uh, that is a real pleasure. 
So that was all the time we had with Brad this week, but there's just so much more to discuss. We'll have to have him back again soon. So email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com. Also, be sure to check out impactnations.com or follow us on Facebook. You'll be encouraged to see the many ways that God is at work around the globe. Have a great week.